Okay, everybody, welcome. Don't worry. Welcome. Uh, it is great to see you here this evening. Um, those of you who are at home, you won't have received a uh, copy of a handout for the simple reason that I haven't produced one. Uh, I've got a whole cluster of different things I want to share with you this evening. Um, and really, in a sense, it's a wrap-up of all the different things that, or many of the different things we've been thinking about in the last few uh, weeks, thinking about the book of Ruth. I think I'll read the whole of chapter 4, just to remind us of where we've come from. Before I do that, though, I do want to make an announcement. Pastor Shaw, am I allowed to make this announcement? I've got a thumbs up from my fellow pastor. So, this is... This is going to sound like a melodramatic. This is the last Wednesday night Bible study. Because this man had a better idea. Seriously. What we'd like to do is to combine uh, what we've been doing here, Wednesday night Bible study, with a couple of other things that uh, we love to do as a church and which we've been missing. Uh, We haven't had the opportunities uh, in recent weeks and months that we've had in previous years for fellowship meals and time together around a meal. Uh, And we'd love to do more singing. We have done that on and off on various occasions, but Pastor Shaw has put his um, pastor of administration hat on and tried to come up with some ways of of, um, uh, incorporating that more into our life as a congregation. So what we've come up with is what I think we'll call uh, midweek at All Saints. We'll start at 530 with a meal, which we'll be providing as a church. We'll cover the cost for that. And um, we'd ask you to sign up so we know how much food to get. That'd be really helpful. 5.30 to 6.15, we'll eat. And then I'm going to do a slightly shorter Bible study, kind of interactive, a bit like what we do here, um, from about 6.15 till 7 o'clock. And then 7 to 7.45, we're going to do some singing, some singing practice, sing some psalms. Uh, Maybe learn some parts. Don't know. Um, Mr. Whittlesey is going to take care of all that stuff, which is a tremendous relief because it means that that's something I don't have to worry about. Um, We're going to look after the food. Uh, We hope that it will be something that families will be able to come to. We've just shifted the time earlier a little bit. It's a little longer, obviously, but the time is a little bit earlier. So we hope that families with young children can take a break from having to prepare food and just come and eat. We'll have Chick-fil-A the first week and then tacos the second week, and I don't know what we'll do after that. Um, and then in the Bible study portion, I'm going to actually start working through the Psalms because it will both be valuable and interesting in all kinds of ways. It's a, it's a Christological book. It will teach us about Jesus. It's a very practical book. It will teach us about ourselves. And, of course, it will teach us about what we're singing. And the thought struck me that one of the things that an event like this would allow us to do is to combine what I'm frequently trying to do in in my teaching and the other pastors also, which is to encourage and exhort us towards greater maturity in Christ with the actual enjoyment of being in Christ together. If you think about it, a lot of our teaching is calling attention to areas of our life and our thinking where we've got so much work to do, haven't we? And we've got so much growing up to do. And I think that's really valuable, obviously. 
And yet at the same time, we're not just in the book of Numbers on the way to the promised land. We are in the book of First Kings, in the land, under the rule of a greater Solomon. And why not just gather together and enjoy the blessings of being the people of God around the table, uh, eating together, uh, singing together, just enjoying being Christians and seeking to grow together in that way. So Wednesday at all, uh, midweek at All Saints, Wednesday night, be 5.30 through till quarter to 8, um, 7.45, uh, with, I hope, all of the good stuff that we've had in Wednesday night Bible study, plus more besides. Any questions, please ask that man, Pastor Shaw, uh, and uh, we will get more information to you, including some sign-up stuff uh, in due course, and we'll be starting next week. So uh, watch out for emails, watch out for um, uh, announcement on Sunday and make a date in your diaries. If you're able to make it, it would be great if, if we can be there. And I hope that those of you who are at home, I know there's one or two watch parties going on in homes that are a bit of a distance away, but uh, I hope you'd at least give it a try, see if it's worth your while driving all that distance from Arlington to come for a little bit longer time to have some fellowship together with the rest of the church family here at All Saints. We don't know what the numbers are going to be. I mean, maybe we'll get 150 people here, we'll, um, which would be great. It'd be wonderful to have a, a great crowd here. So that's for next week onwards. Meanwhile, here we are with the book of Ruth. I want to lead us in prayer, and then I want to read the chapter, and then I want to uh, share some reflections with you about some thoughts that have been in my mind and my heart as I've been reading this and thinking through the whole of the book. So let's pray together and we'll begin. Merciful Father, we are thankful to you for the blessings that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for gathering us as, as your people, for opening wide your most sacred lips and speaking your word to us to shape and renew us in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we come today to the climax of this wonderful little book, the book of Ruth, uh, we're reminded of your sovereign purposes, your ways in the world, and how we ought to respond to them in relationship with each other. As we see these, in a sense, quite ordinary men and women in this book, uh, growing together and being used mightily in your purposes. We pray, Father, that that will be our aspiration, to enrich and be enriched in our relationships with one another as we seek to live like Jesus and to be content with being insignificant so that we may be used in your purposes for Christ's glory. And we pray in his name. Amen. All right, Ruth chapter 4. First part of this we looked at last week. It will be familiar. I'm sure the rest of it will be familiar, but we can do with a reminder of it. I'll read the whole chapter. Now, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, 
The day you buy the fields from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, one drew off his handle and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I've bought from the hand of Naomi all that belongs to Elimelech and all that belongs to Kilian and to Mahlon. Also, Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of Mahlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse Jesse fathered David. All right. The cluster of issues that I want to uh, talk with you about this evening center on three themes. To put most simply, uh, God, people, and our culture. To flesh it out a little bit more, I want to think about what God does in history through his people to transform and shape the culture in which we live. And to introduce this, I want to tell you a story. This is a true story about two people, uh, Ben and Annie. Ben and Annie, we all right with this? Camera, Mr. Robinson. It froze. That's just me. Just stuck. I'll just pause in case the people at home are suffering for want of Zoom connection and see if we can liberate it from the darkness. Is it the camera that's frozen or the, um, the camera? 
laptop. All right, so maybe it's just the laptop that's frozen. No, I can see other people. I can see All right, video. okay. Talk quietly among yourselves, and, uh, <laughs> and if you know any good jokes, I've normally got some lined up for occasions like this. But. Yeah. It was bound to happen on the day that Mr. Robinson volunteered to do the tech stuff, wasn't it? Mrs. Robinson got her hand up. Mm-hmm. Looks fine to Evelyn. It's fine on their end. Okay. Right. But it's all fine. I think it's all fine. Okay. What's frozen on my... Well... Just you. Just me. I'm just frozen. So, so maybe what I need to do to make that frozenness more realistic is just to stay completely static and frozen like this. Okay. So I, I'm going to carry on. It sounds like Evelyn at least can listen in. Nice to see you, Evelyn. hope you're enjoying yourself. Um, I want to tell you about um, Ben and Annie. So Ben and Annie, well, Ben was born in uh, 1851. Uh, he married Annie when he was about 25. He was, she was about 25 as well. They were American. They actually went to Germany for their honeymoon. Ben was a scholar who was working in a university over there for a while. On their honeymoon, tragedy struck um, when uh, they were... The stories vary. The story that I've heard uh, most often is that they were waiting on a railway platform, sheltering there during a thunderstorm, when a lightning strike actually struck Annie, uh, leaving her partially or even completely paralyzed for the whole of the rest of her life. And Ben, her husband, uh, nursed her, cared for her, provided for her throughout the many decades of their marriage. Uh, She uh, finally died in uh, 1915 after... What's that? Nearly 30 years of marriage. Uh, ben lived for another uh, decade and a half. Well, no, no, pardon me, another five, six years or so. Died in 1921. Um, and uh, the story of their life is recounted in um, an article, uh, part of the title of which speaks of his supernatural patience. Uh, his consistent grace, his consistent kindness, of course, his commitment to the marriage covenant. How many married couples imagine that the promise for better, for worse, in sickness and in health should take such a turn so quickly? And so Ben and Annie's marriage was spent with Annie mostly confined to a wheelchair. In fact, Um, Ben almost never left the house for more than two hours at a time during the whole of their marriage. So great were Annie's physical needs for him to be around and to care for her. 
Ben's full name, in case we have any theologians around, was Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield. Some of you might have heard of Benjamin Warfield. He was one of the finest Reformed and Presbyterian theologians of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. His writings continued and paved the way for the future of the growing and strengthening Reformed movement in America. Um, Before him were the Hodges at Princeton, and after him, of course, um, when old Princeton sort of went sideways, um, a number of men left and formed Westminster Theological Seminary, which continues to this day. I think that's the timeline, isn't it, roughly, Pastor Shaw? And were you at Westminster Theological Seminary? You were at Covenant, that's right. Um, uh, Such great names as Gresham Machen followed in his footsteps. And personally, I owe a huge debt to Benjamin Warfield and his intellectual and spiritual heirs. And what his life illustrates is a principle which I don't know how many times we're going to need to be told it by the Lord or taught it by the Lord, but it's this principle that the Lord works wonderfully through sometimes insignificant people, through their consistent faithfulness, through their steady patience. When Benjamin and Annie were starting to process in the early weeks of their marriage, the effects of Annie's injuries, they didn't know what we know now looking back. It's often the way we read history. It's so distorted by what we know of later events. And we imagine that they must have been fortified with this supernatural knowledge of what was to become of them, that Benjamin Warfield would become one of the world's most famous reformed theologians of the last 200 years. They didn't know that. What they were, were Ben and Annie, whose future had been shattered, apparently, by a a terrible, how would you describe it, accident, not really, uh, a most unwelcome intervention of God's providence. And yet, through his faithfulness and through Annie's patience in years and years of infirmity and pain and frustration... um, the Lord did truly remarkable things. And it raises uh, the kinds of questions which I've often reflected on as I've thought about the book of Ruth. If you think about when Ruth is set for a second, Ruth is set, chapter 1, verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, literally the days when the judges judged. Men like Ehud, the mighty left-handed warrior who stabbed fat King Eglon in the stomach with a sword and a blade or something came out the back. Men like Othniel, the first judge, the the faithful man to whom Caleb gave his daughter in marriage, so impressed was he with his commitment and his courage. Uh, Men like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah, who despite all their flaws were great leaders who accomplished mighty deeds and who ruled for good or ill, sometimes for ill, sometimes for good, but for many decades. If you went back to Israel during the days of the judges and you tried to think, where is God really at work? 
Where's God doing his thing? Where is the action happening? You would surely think of Othniel and Gideon and Ehud and maybe not Barak, maybe Deborah. Because <laughs> Deborah, you know, she's the lady who had to kick Barak. Come on, get up. Um, Samson and Jephthah and all those other, even the minor judges who are listed there as men who did great deeds. And as you read through the scriptures, you get to the end of the book of Judges and you remember the chaos that the land is in. Uh, There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. All the attempts at kingship in the book of Judges, there was actually one attempt in particular, uh, of Abimelech, the son of Gideon, was a catastrophe. And all the other attempts at rule, at stabilizing the nation, at driving out the idolatry of the people, at, at cementing Israel's borders and security, failed. And the nation is teetering on the edge of crisis. So what's God going to do? What mighty deeds is he going to perform? What miracles? Is he, are we going to see a return to the likes of Moses? the kind of parting of the Red Sea level miracles and the mountain shaking and earthquake and fire coming down from heaven, delivery of the law at Sinai kind of miracles. How is God going to establish this nation and prepare for its future and solve all the the problems that the end of the book of Judges prepares us with? The answer is a young foreign woman talking to a slightly elderly gentleman in the corner of a barley field. That's how the Lord works in his providence to secure the nation. And if you think about that triad, the the three kind of headings, I've got in my mind a sort of triangle. I've got God and the people and the culture. So God in his providence is working through a particular kind of people. People who are humble, people who have suffered, people who were forced to trust him when they didn't know about their future, what we have the benefit of knowing, looking back. People who remained committed to one another, even when you know the person that you're with is not exactly the most wonderful company. I mean, I can't imagine that Naomi coming back from Moab in the end of chapter one at the beginning of chapter two was great fun of an evening. You know, let's go back and have a fun evening with grumpy mother-in-law. You know, it's like, but remaining faithful to her and all the time having this expectancy that the Lord will act. Do you remember the, the combination of uh, bewildered surprise and yet hope that Boaz and Ruth expressed in chapter 2 in particular, just, just turn back there, when they had that long conversation, uh, when Boaz initially, verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8, expresses um, how he's intending to care for Ruth in the first instance. You know, stay here, don't go anywhere else. I've told the young guys not to touch you. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I'm a foreigner? And the hope that she expressed in chapter 1, when she said, Your people will be my people, your God will be my God, Boaz then answers, 
all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, all the having your shoulder cried on, all the being overlooked when she comes back and she says the Lord has brought her back empty when you're the woman standing at her side, all of the scratching around in the dirt and the dust, picking up individual grains of barley to try and get enough for a loaf of bread to feed her, all that has been told to me. And how you left your native land and came to a people you didn't know because you knew that the Lord was with them. May a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And of course, she takes refuge under Boaz's wings because his garment is the wings of his garment. Same word in Hebrew. And then she says, she, she realizes that what, she, what she's found is what she was looking for. She's found favor. She's found grace in the eyes of of Boaz, whom she calls my Lord, (laughs) interestingly, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And so if, if there's one image I want to leave you with from this evening and from the whole of the book of Ruth is it's that our lives, our insignificant little lives. Let's get used to that, shall we? Our insignificant little lives are the kinds of lives through which God does great things, provided, and this is, this, this is the, not quite a caveat, but this is the condition for being able to see one day, long, long, long in the future. This is the condition for being able to see what God is doing in and through you, provided you're willing to wait, and wait probably many generations. To wait many generations to see what the Lord does, either through your children or through people whom you influence, who have children down through the generations. Because that's what it was like for Boaz and for Ruth. If we just turn back to Ruth chapter 4, it must have been a relief to them, that is to Ruth and Naomi, when finally this marriage was sorted out, finally the other redeemer was taken care of. Remember we talked about that last week. Finally that couple of ladies is secured but there they are I mean in comparative insignificance and it's only when you look forward the last verse of the chapter three more generations Obed Jesse David and when you import into that what we know about David's future that you see the significance of what they were doing I have no idea really no idea at all what the Lord is doing through you, any one of you, and neither do you. And I submit to you that you won't know for many generations. You will look back from the perspective of the resurrection on the last day and you will have the privilege of seeing what the Lord is doing through you. Some of you younger people might rise to great prominence Well, wonderful. So did Gideon. So did Samson. 
And their names are remembered as faithful men, flawed, but faithful men. But it was through Boaz and Ruth that the Lord brought King David and King Solomon and King Jesus. So that's the big picture I want to leave you with. In a second, we'll, we'll jump into the details. You see how I'm, how I'm suggesting the interplay between these three, thing, these three themes? How God in his sovereignty, in his kind providence, uses people, a particular kind of people, to transform the culture of the world. It's not the way we'd expect. And I hope, therefore, that that minimally is an encouragement to you. I want to jump into some of the details here, but let me pause for a second um, because it maybe you have some thoughts or some reflections on that. And anybody who's online who wants to jump in, please feel free to do so. Any thoughts about that? That big theme that emerges from the book. All right. In that case, let me suggest that what we do is we just start working through the text a little bit, verse at a time. Uh, more or less from where we left off last week, we got to verse, um, got to verse 10. I wanted to highlight a few bits of pieces for you. So let's just read a few verses at a time, not just one verse at a time. And then we'll um, pause and see what we learn from this. So verse 11. You've just had the the cementing of this commitment from Boaz to marry Ruth. And the people at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses, we've seen this, we're going to hold you to this, we're going to hold this man, the other redeemer, he's relinquished his claim upon Ruth and Naomi and the land. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house, and now what do you notice about what the text does? Like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. What do you notice about that? Just those two or three verses. Who's mentioned there? Beg your pardon? Tamar. Tamar? Or the women. Which women in particular? Yeah, Rachel, Leah, Tamar. Any other names? Just count all the names for me. Just read through those verses I've just read. Rachel and Leah. Your names of places. Ephrathah, Bethlehem. Very good. The house of of Judah. House of Perez, it says, doesn't it? Tamar, Judah. Seven names. Oh, surely that's not significant. Anyway, but remember what happens to the names at the beginning of the book. Who remembers when we looked at, in chapter 1, the first five verses? There's this um, almost eerie literary device that is used to depict the uh, aloneness and barrenness and emptiness of Naomi's life. When you've got all these names... Elimelech, Naomi, Mahlon, Kilian, Ephrathites, Bethlehem, Judah, Orpah, Ruth. And then the names fade out. 
verse 5, both Marlon and Killian died. And then you remember at the end of verse 5, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Can you see what's happened? So the names fade away. And Naomi just becomes this woman, this kind of lonely, hooded figure. Who, maybe people just didn't know her name. Maybe they couldn't really pronounce it anyway, different language, you know. She's got nobody. She is nobody. All the names evaporate. And now what happens in chapter 4 is all the names come back and all the places come back. They, at the beginning, they left Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and now Bethlehem, Ephrathah, is mentioned again. And all the names start to populate the narrative again. Can you see that it's as though the picture had been... If you, if you, um, I'm just about old enough to remember black and white TVs. Or at least I, I can... I don't think we ever had a black and white TV, but we had a colour TV that had analogue dials on it. Anybody else have, have one of those? And you could turn the colour down and you could turn the colour up. And when you turned it on, you had to wait sort of two minutes for the thing to warm up and it was twice as deep as it was wide and it had a screen like a goldfish bowl. Um, but... It's, it's as though what happens in chapter 1 is that death turns the dial down on the colour and everything goes to black and white and everything's kind of grey and overcast. And now what happens is the colour gets turned up again and that the people spring back to life in this fresh way because all these names come back into focus. Now, why these names? I mean, uh, Mrs. Claghorn, you said, like, all the names of these famous women. But why? Come on. Wh- why these particular women? What's special about Rachel and Leah, for a start? What's going on with them? Right. Yeah. Right. And so it's like it's a new, new nation forming. Almost. It does, yeah. It looks like um, uh, you said a new nation forming. We can see that with the benefit of hindsight because what, and actually what they would have known also about Rachel and Leah, that's what they're praying or, or uh, the hope they're expressing. If, uh, you can remember the family tree in Genesis, right, from Abraham onwards. And it's a very skinny family tree. You know what family trees are normally shaped like if, it, if everything's going smoothly? They're like this. Because every generation, you might have a, a married couple that has uh, three kids or seven kids or however many it is. And, and it goes outwards. But you remember the family tree in Genesis? It's like, think, think, think. It's Abraham, Isaac, well, Ishmael, but um, Jacob. And it's, but it's Jacob... That's the point at which the tree starts to broaden. And the promise that God has made back in Genesis 12 to Abraham starts to be fulfilled. And it's fulfilled in the form of children being given to um, the family of the people of God. And so for this couple, um, for Ruth and Boaz... May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. It's expressing the desire that at this moment in history, you'd see the flourishing of the promises of God. 
just like with Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. See, that makes sense? Like, it, it was not the case that the house of, well, Jacob, Israel, that's where um, the, the nation got its name from Jacob's other name because it was from him and his wives that many descendants started to come. So then you've got those places, Ephrathah and Bethlehem. It's like, this is your home now. The the city is no longer a sort of shadowy backdrop to the events out in the field, which is what's happened in chapters 2 and 3. You notice there are shifts in geographical setting. Chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1 at least, they're in Bethlehem. Chapters 2 and 3, it's rural. It's outside the city. Chapter 4, we're back in the city gates again. It's a very deliberate movement. It's like we're rebuilding the city of the people of God. Bethlehem. Which reminds you of somebody, right? Because it's that Bethlehem. But who else? These other names. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Who remembers the story of Perez and Tamar and Judah? Sorry, it's... um, young children present. Um, yes, sir? Yeah, about where, um, you, you, it's one of those things where you've got the, you sort of know what's in your head, but you can't quite put it in order. You get in that sometimes? I, it happens to me all the time. Sometimes it happens to me about quarter to 12 on a Sunday morning. Very embarrassing. <laughs> Right. I, I'm going to let you look it up a little bit, Jude, okay? And you give, put your hand up and give me a shout if you want to pitch back in. Just turn back with me to Genesis 38. And I know this is a, this is a narrative I think I've probably talked through with you before because it turns out to be quite a significant one. Um. There's a lot going on here that alludes to different problems in the life of the people of God at this stage, and there are different sins involved. But basically what you have is um, Judah, chapter 38, verse 1, um, and he has three sons, Anun uh, and Shelah. And the oldest one gets married. Now, Judah is significant because uh, he is, we certainly learn this later, and it, if we looked at the detail of Genesis up to this point, it would become obvious that he, he's the next son in line after Reuben, Levi, Simeon, Judah. Reuben, Levi, and Simeon have all done different things which make them unlikely candidates for the preeminent son to follow in Jacob's footsteps. So Judah is now kind of top of the pile. And, and in the narrative of Genesis as a whole, what we're looking for is a, a kingly figure to replace Adam. And so Judah, especially in the light of what is said on his father's deathbed in Genesis 49, Judah is the candidate for the kingship. 
He's the one who's most likely to take the crown of this new community of people. Oh, and he has three sons, uh, Onan and Shelah, and the, the oldest marries Tamar. And one thing leads to another. Uh, is an ungodly man. The Lord puts him to death. Not a great start. Onan, various other slightly different reasons. The Lord puts him to death also. And Shelah, um, who is supposed to be given to Tamar in Leverite marriage style, uh, in an arrangement like what later became Leverite marriage we looked at last week. Um, Sheila is too young. He's like about 12 or something. And so he's not given to um, Tamar in marriage at all. And Tamar starts to become frustrated. She goes and dresses up as a prostitute, stands by the side of the road. Judah comes along. That's right, her father-in-law. Total mess and chaos. What emerges from that is um, deep, deep criticism of Judah's ungodliness because he blames Tamar for committing immorality. And then you remember the story that that, uh, Tamar brings out the staff that belongs to Judas as well. The the guy I slept with, this is his. And Judas like, oops, that's me. But the children that are born from that union are, just look at the end of the chapter with me, verse 29, uh, the first of the twins drew back his hand and his brother came out and she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Perez is the firstborn of these twins to Tamar through by Judah. And then afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet feather on his hand. His name was called Zerah. So Perez is the good news that emerges from this messy situation. Really messy situation. He's the, the next firstborn in the line of the tribe of Judah. Albeit from a sinful and ungodly mess of a relationship. And for some reason, or maybe for that reason, that's the household that the ladies refer to in verse 12. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So what, okay, when they refer to Rachel and Leah, the people at the gate are expressing the hope that she'll be the mother of many children. When they refer to Perez, what are they saying? Yeah. Right. I think that might be it. It's the new beginning out of a mess. And of course, it's a mess that has particular consequences for the people of Israel. Um, uh, again, this is a. I think I drew the family tree on the whiteboard for you a few months ago, but you might not be able to remember some of the details here. Just um, turn with me to Deuteronomy 23, and I'll remind you of the mess that lingers here. Deuteronomy 23 is one of those little texts, you know, in your personal Bible reading, that I know there are things we all skip over, right? You skip over the genealogies at the beginning of First Chronicles. Come on. Yeah, I know. We all do. Well, actually, we don't all sometimes, but 
you know, maybe, maybe you listen on an audio Bible and you're like, I'm going to get through it this time. Well, this is another one of those ones that you probably just skip over. I mean, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. I'll leave you to read that for yourself. Verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, which is quite, quite a big deal for Perez, born of an immoral union between well, his mother and his mother's father-in-law. And then verse 3, while we're here, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they didn't meet you with bread and water on the way, etc., etc. So both Ammonites and Moabites, Moabites, yes, like Ruth, and children born of ungodly unions between their parents, neither may enter the assembly of the Lord. That is, they can't come into the community at a time of worship for 10 generations. Now, those restrictions linger in the background here and must have been in the mind of at least some of the thoughtful folks who said what they said in verse 12. May your house be like the house of Perez. What, like, so can't come into the assembly of the Lord for 10 generations. So how does this chapter address that problem? Just look at the towards the end of the chapter and see if you notice anything about um, the genealogy. Go on, Daniel. Very good. Exactly right. There are ten generations between Perez and David. It's this bizarre... Like, why, why would you include a genealogy at the end of a book like this? Well, to prove a point. You know, you, nobody born of Perez, or just, sorry, sorry, pardon me, nobody descended from Perez can enter the assembly of the Lord for ten generations. Wouldn't make a very good king then, would he? So let's just count the generations. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. And you count the generations, there are ten of them. So what the, the chapter is presenting us with this, um, may you be like the house of that really messed up family. You know, there used to be a, a TV show that I never really watched in England called EastEnders. It was like a, not, um, uh, not a soap, yeah, like a soap opera, like every, every day. And it basically, I used to, I watched it a couple of times when it first came out and I concluded quite quickly that it was basically uh, a narrative about the 33 most unlucky people in the entire universe. Like, it was really, really dreary. Everything that could go wrong went wrong in EastEnders for these people. Well, the house of... I mean, just imagine the situation for a second. Judah and Tamar. I mean, that household. What a train wreck of a household. And it's as though what the way that the, the 
people at the gate in Bethlehem speak. May your house be like the household that's just a complete mess that the Lord redeems. And so you start to see the picture this is giving you. We have this idea that the way the Lord is going to change the world is by somebody really significant with a glittering, uh, crystal clear past. He's never put a foot wrong. The, the model student, the, uh, the model athlete, the, the model businessman, the model father, the guy with a chiseled chin and uh, who's a foot tall and everybody else just like Saul, right? And what he actually wants to do is to take somebody who's really a bit of an embarrassment. Um, oh, where, where's Perez's daddy? Um, hmm. How many times would she have had to have that conversation? May your house be like the house of Perez. Because that's the kind of house that the Lord likes to redeem. And ten generations later, it's what he's done. And I don't know what your family's like. I was talking to um, somebody, (laughs) Miss uh, Manning, earlier today about um, my own family background. In some ways, a bit of a pickle, as we say in England. The, the Lord can redeem even people like me. <laughs> Sorry, Joel, you had your hand up. Why, why don't you think the description on Moabite that you read from Deuteronomy applies? Yeah, very good. I knew you'd spot that. I knew somebody would, and it would probably be you. You notice when we read from Deuteronomy 23, I, I had us read verse 3 as well. The Lord has solved the immoral union restriction of verse 2. But you remember it says, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord for ten generations. And hold on a second, because who's the mother of Obed? It's a Moabite. So how does the narrative here address that question? And the answer is staring us in the face. If you just, and um, um, Jonathan Barnes is nodding, have you spotted this? Just, um, let, let me read from verse 13 again and see if you all spot it. How do we get round the problem that no child of Ruth, the Moabites, can enter the assembly of the Lord for ten generations? Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, there she is, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. You know what Obed means, by the way? It means slave or servant. It's customarily translated servant in our Bibles in the Old Testament. But it's from the verb to be, a, to, to be enslaved or to be a slave, and it's in Exodus 1 and elsewhere. Servant of the Lord or slave of the Lord. Interesting name to give a son. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Right, the answer's in there. So what's the answer? How does the Lord solve this Moabite issue? Yeah, um, Sophia. Yeah, very good. You'll hear that? 
uh, Obed is considered to be Naomi's son, not Ruth's. I think I might have hinted at this last week or even mentioned it briefly. We looked last time at, in some detail, at the way that Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer for Elimelech, who, you remember, was Naomi's husband. Um, Actually, that's only half the story. What the women say here is that, in effect, Ruth becomes a kinsman, maybe kinswoman redeemer, for Naomi. Boaz steps into Elimelech's shoes, does what he can't do because he's dead. And Ruth steps into Naomi's shoes and does what she can't do because, well, she's the the lost, anonymous widow of chapter 1. And what's happened here is that she has been transformed. It's one of the most wonderful Uh, renewal, personal renewal narratives in Scripture, I think, of Naomi. She starts off um, in chapter 1 down this slide towards bitterness and resentment and frustration and victimhood. And we're trying to find... um, redeeming features and we're struggling what we can do is at least say she has some reason to feel embittered and frustrated maybe she's wrong to express her bitterness in the way she does I think probably she is but she has every reason to feel like her life has just completely fallen to bits and at the end all the color has been switched back on again and it's happened because of Ruth Boaz wasn't going to marry Ruth if she wasn't the kind of woman that a godly man like that would want to marry. Remember, he's an older man. He's already turned down the potential for marriage from other people because he's got more sense than to marry somebody who wouldn't be a a good wife for him. But now he's met this Moabite uh, widow. Not, Not really the way you'd plan your son's childhood. You know, wait till you're 55 and then get married but better to wait till you're 55 than to marry unwisely at 25. And that's what he does. And because of Ruth's faithfulness and godliness, she's then in a position to provide for Naomi what she had lost. And at the end, it's like she's sitting with this baby on her lap, like a son has been born to Naomi. She's... Is one of the sub-narratives of the book. Uh, The extent to which we, by God's grace, have the capacity to transform the lives of people around us. Um, I don't know who they'll be for you. Um, I remember one young man, this is years, years back now, it was back in 2000, 2001, first uh, job I had as a, at a church and um, this young man was a student um, and he came to the church his parents didn't really uh, he was a Christian but he was deeply deeply troubled emotionally, um, psychologically I honestly didn't know what to do <laughs> with this young lad, he was, I was probably how old was I, 27, 28 he was um, probably 19 And I remember talking to one of the older ministers in the church 
Um, and you know, am I missing something? What, what could I be doing for this young man to, to help him? To he would always be uh, he'd always be sad. He would he would be very introverted. He would find it very difficult to just relate to other people. Is there anything I could do for him? And this older minister, Paul, said, you know, sometimes there are people who we just have to help them hobble past the finish line. Um, Sometimes you, you just have to walk with them. Or maybe you have to walk with them in their sorrow for many years before they begin to experience some kind of transformation. And, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe that experience isn't so unique. Maybe there will be people um, with whom we have the privilege of walking for a number of years, maybe a number of decades, and we're longing to see them experience some of the joy of the Lord that perhaps we feel more um, naturally or readily. Maybe that's how Ruth experienced her relationship with Naomi. And in the end, in this case, Naomi was, was a changed woman. Um, uh, verse 15 has an interesting little phrase in it. Um, I'll read it to you more literally and then tell me where you've seen it um, before. It's very familiar. Once I tell you, you'll kick yourself if you don't get it. He shall be to you a restorer of soul and a nourisher of your old age. He shall be one who restores your soul. Have you seen that before? Quite, quite rare expression, but it comes in one very, very well-known place. You've, yes, sir? Yeah, go on. He restores my soul. Where have you seen that before? Go on. Psalm 23. Just turn with me to Psalm 23. Remember who we're talking about here. Um, Blessed be the Lord who's not left you this day without a redeemer. May... His name be renowned in Israel. I think that's the Redeemer's name. I think it refers to the child. I'm not sure, but it it seems to be. Maybe it's a reference to Boaz. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Yeah, it's the child. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, etc., has given birth to him. So it's the child. Obed, the servant, is the one who restores your soul. You go to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And so, among many other things, what this psalm is doing, which is, remember, it's a psalm of David, a psalm written by her great-grandson, echoing what the women of the city said of great-grandma, kind of great-grandma, Naomi. Um, This baby will restore your soul. But it's not the baby who will restore your soul. It's the Lord who will do it. And so 
in these very tangible ways. The, the gift of this child to um, mother-in-law, to grandma, has done for her what the Lord promises in Psalm 23. He restores my soul. Let me pause there a moment because there's a bunch of little details that you might... I don't want to just keep talking. Any questions or comments or thoughts about that? Hmm. Yeah, Preston. Yeah. Still yeah. How does that not still fall into the, that yeah, it's an interesting question because you know, ju- just by saying um, it's Naomi's child, you don't change biological reality. Um, so maybe the, the, the best way to answer the question is, is to reverse it the other way around, to say... Um, we think of biological relationship as constitutive, as decisive, and that um, relation, other relational commitments can't overcome that. This text says differently. What this text implies is that um, blood is not thicker than water. Um, to put it another way, if... Ruth makes a formal commitment to stand in for her mother-in-law. That, that, that beats biology. And therefore, the law will be fulfilled. Yes, exactly. So I, there isn't a, a, a covenant ratification ceremony in the same way as there is with the sandal, like with the men. But I think it's the only conclusion that we can reach. Otherwise, Deuteronomy 23.3 has been breached. So I think what we're supposed to think is there is some perhaps implicit, perhaps informal, but certainly meaningful and relationally constitutive commitment. Ruth has given birth to this child. And of course, she's going to feed the child and care for the child. But within that home, you've got a picture here of Grandma looking after the kid. A child has been born to Naomi. Ruth has done this for Naomi. Ruth has given a child to Naomi. Would that be a deeper expression of what you talked about a couple of weeks ago in reference to the spirit of the law? Yeah, I think that's right. That, um, just for the sake of those of you at home, it's another expression of the spirit of the law. I think that's right. And Mr. Robinson, other Robinson, Todd Robinson, made the comment last week that it's another way in which Boaz is a bit like Jesus, that he gets to come along and tell you what Torah really means. Like, you've heard that it was said. Yeah, okay, very good. Now, I say to you... (laughs) Now, of course, he's addressing there both um, Torah as it was under the Old Covenant and distortions of the Torah. You shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Nowhere in the Bible does it put those two things. That's not from the Torah. There are Psalms that that hint at that uh, attitude towards the enemies of God, but that's not how the Torah presents the love your neighbor command, right? Um, 
So, but Jesus gets to tell us what the law was always supposed to mean. If you believe Moses, you believe me, because he wrote about me. He, he get, that's one of the things he can do as the Messiah. And Boaz here is a prototype Messiah, because he's, he's seeing in the law what it's supposed to accomplish. What it's supposed to accomplish in this context is that men and women who are willing to sacrifice to give themselves for others, can redeem other people. He's a redeemer. The text says he's a redeemer. This little slave, servant, Eved, Obed, has redeemed Naomi. And we shouldn't be afraid of that language. I think sometimes we, um, we're a little nervous about attributing to um, people things that scripture attributes to the Lord. And I understand that. I think that's right because the the Lord uniquely is our redeemer. But at the same time, it's not wrong to recognize the way the Lord works through people. And unspectacular, patient, consistent, humble, sacrificial people. There was... um, uh, the church where Nicole used to go when we were students, where um, the pastor, Vaughan Roberts, I think she still regards Vaughan as her favorite preacher, and with very good reason, right? He's a very good preacher. Um, uh, that church grew wonderfully um, over a number of years. Um, uh, ministry to students, ministry to um, uh, residents of the city. It was in Oxford. Uh, and Vaughan and his predecessor, David Fletcher, used to, in all seriousness, they would attribute the fruitfulness of the ministry at St. Ebbs in Oxford to a little group of old ladies who used to meet once a week to pray for the church. They weren't joking. We, I remember the first time I heard the story about uh, David Fletcher's little group of old ladies praying. I, I thought he was being sort of whimsical. I don't think he was. I, I think he genuinely wanted to encourage them because he thought it was true that it, it's these little old ladies who meet every week to pray. This is why the Lord is blessing this ministry. Obviously, it's not the only reason why, but what, it points to um, a deeply significant reality of which we see shades here, that um, it's the insignificant um, people who lay down their lives who give, who pray, who are faithful in the long term, through whom God does amazing things. And I, I don't want to open a huge can of worms, but let me, just say, let me just say this slightly. There is a tendency in an age like ours where we see with increasing clarity and perhaps even a touch of anxiety the social and political institutions upon which we've relied for so many generations, starting to crumble and uh, trust in those institutions, academic institutions, political institutions, social institutions. We see trust in those things crumbling. The solution that is very often posited is we need to raise up a new generation of leaders. And I don't, it's not like I disagree (laughs) 
obviously, it will be wonderful to have a new generation of men and women who are placed by God in positions like Daniel and like Joseph. But I can't get away from the thought that maybe what we need is a new generation of people like Ruth and Boaz. And that the most culture-shaping things happening in this nation right now are not happening on Capitol Hill. And they're not even happening in the places where the next generation of lawyers and CEOs and business leaders and um, K Street and Wall Street executives are being trained. They're not happening there either. They're happening in ordinary, boring-looking, normal Christian homes where um, men and women are faithfully raising their kids and they're content to not see the fruit for generations. They may never see it. As far as we know, Ruth never even met King David. But I, if we really wanted to shape our culture for the better, my suspicion is that we need more Ruth and Boaz. We have four minutes left. And um, I, I wonder if we might pray a little bit, just take a few minutes. Um, uh, maybe just in the groups where you are, so you've got siblings there, family there. Uh, Kerry, you're sitting behind your sister, so I'm sure you could sort of spin around and pray there. And um, Actually, Jonathan and, and um, Joel, why don't we just go gather in the corner with Pastor, with Pastor um, Shaw over there. And perhaps if we could just spend a few minutes praying together. Those of you who are at home, don't miss the opportunity. Don't go and make yourself another mug of tea. Um, just pause if you wouldn't mind perhaps and spend two or three minutes in prayer in relation to those issues we've just been talking about then we'll come back and um, I'll lead us in prayer as we conclude should we do that? I began with a quote from um, not a quote, story of Ben and Annie here's a quotation from Ben sorry Professor Warfield, about Christ. This is right at the end of this book that I've been recommending to you, Paul Miller, A Loving Life. Christ did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He took no account of self. He was not led into the recesses of his own soul to brood morbidly over his own needs. He was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Self-sacrifice brought Christ into the world and self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there will we be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there will we be to help. Wherever men fail, there will we be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there will we be to rejoice. There are some aspirations, aren't there? He continues. Self-sacrifice means not indifference to our times and our fellows. It means absorption in them. It means forgetfulness of self. 
It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longing and despairs. It means that we should live not one life, but a thousand lives, binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the filaments of so loving a sympathy that their lives become ours. I don't know how you come up with prose like that, except by praying it. So we live a thousand lives by binding ourselves to a thousand other souls. The Lord bless you. Have a great week. See you back here next week. Let's pray together one more time as we conclude. Merciful Father, we're thankful to you for uh, what you've taught us in this book. We pray you would, as our forefather in the faith, Professor Warfield said, bind our lives to a thousand others, that we may live a thousand lives by giving ourselves to those others whom you and your providence have brought across our paths. Make us content to be nothing. Make us willing to be humble and to sacrifice that through us and even unbeknown to us until the last day, you might do great things to bring about your purposes. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Shaw, do we want to tidy up these chairs? We've got the usual job to do. We'll have a bigger crew next week. All right.